Welcome to a special discussion section edition of Economics Amplified. What is discussion section? A chance for Becker Freeman Institute co-chair Kevin Murphy to sit down with economists of all backgrounds and research interests, compare notes, and unpack their unique approach to solving real-world problems using economic science. Video highlights from each discussion can be found on our website, but the uncut version of each conversation appears here in our podcast feed. Manasya Deshpande is an emerging expert in how social insurance programs shape the outcomes of their recipients. In this episode, she and Kevin Murphy discuss the importance of empirical measurement of such programs over a lifetime and how those effects shape the recipient's labor response. The pair talk about the ways that economists bring a unique framework to public policy in order to better measure the efficacy of what a policy is trying to do. Okay, Manasi, great to have you here today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, glad. To, first off, glad to have you at Chicago. I think it was a Thank real you. coup for us to get you to be here, and I know it's it's you're just starting your career as an economist. And a uh, little bit, a little bit of background. How did you get interested in economics, and how did you get interested in the areas of economics that you're working on today? Yeah. So I think I my first introduction to economics was in high school, and I. Was very I was fascinated by economics as a framework for understanding problems that we face. And when I went to college, I I studied humanities, um, and I felt like my humanities classes were very good at describing problems about the world, whether they were problems of the environment or of poverty, but often not as good at thinking about solutions. And that's where economics stepped in for me. I was very compelled by the framework that economics provides to think about costs and benefits of different policies to address these problems. And after college, I went to work at the Hamilton Project at Brookings. And this is a domestic economic policy group that the goal is to translate academic work into material that's accessible to policymakers. So, what economists would do if, uh, if sort of if they could do um, anything in the world. And I got a really wide exposure to different economic problems. So I worked on infrastructure, on climate change, on poverty, and I think that's the place that really. It was, a, it was a very formative time in the development of my career and my research interests. I became more and more interested in issues of poverty and social insurance and public assistance programs. And that's what I study now. I study these uh, public assistance and social insurance programs, how they interact with labor markets, how they affect people's incentives to work and get educated, and their long-term effects on the outcomes of recipients and on society as a whole. Okay, so let me let me try to parse that a little bit. I mean, actually, I just did, just got done doing an interview with Casey Mulligan, and he was very much informing the audience about incentives and how incentive affects a policy and how policies play into what we see in the world. But I think he started from kind of a fundamentally the same place, which is how an economist looks at policies maybe a little differently than how non-economists would look at it. And one of the questions an economist naturally asks is, all right, you put a policy in place, the world's not a static place. These are not a bunch of rocks that people aren't like rocks that I just go out and I want to break them in half. I hit them with a hammer and they get broken in half and that's the end of the story. They might not like getting hit with a hammer. They might do other things to avoid getting hit or encourage getting hit, whatever it is. These are people have a mind of their own and they act on their own. And but it's not just the people that act. It's also the marketplace. There's a marketplace out there. So there's a ripple effect that happens through the market that that also we have to take into account. Um, So. Are you. I guess tell me a little bit about where where you think econ- economics really has the power. You you are drawn to it by its power to analyze these problems. 
What do, what do we what do economists have in their toolkit that other people maybe don't pay as much attention to? So I think that policy debates about public assistance and social insurance programs tend to be characterized by extremes, right? So you have people on the one on one side arguing that these kinds of programs are panaceas, that they have no adverse effects on recipients or no perverse effects. And then on the other hand, you have people on the other side of the spectrum arguing that they, you know, they 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 create idleness or laziness or they, they have terrible perverse incentives. And I think the truth is that these are empirical questions. There's absolutely a role for preferences in making these kinds of decisions, but I think what economists can bring is empirical evidence on elasticities, right? On how people respond to incentives created by programs. So in my research, for example, some of my research has been on the Supplemental Security Income Program, the children's program. So this is a program that provides cash benefits and Medicaid to low-income children who have disabilities. And this is a rapidly expanding program. Most of the surge in enrollment has come from children with mental conditions like ADHD, like speech delay. And there's been substantial controversy in the media about you know, the, the expansion of this program and whether uh, it is helping or hurting kids to, to have them on this program. But basically, zero empirical evidence right, about this trade-off that I think economics, provide, economics provides a, a, a framework for thinking about trade-offs, that on the one hand, you provide households with income, and that can be very beneficial uh, to the household in providing for these children, especially if they have a disability. On the other hand, right, the, their, the inherent nature of public assistance and social insurance programs is that they that they create incentives for recipients. So there, there, there's a, you know, as you earn more, your benefits are taxed away. Or if the child is doing better in school, does the family think that the, the child will be removed from the program and that they will lose that income? If that's something that the family believes, then that's you know, something that we need to empirically measure, right? What is the, what is the family's response? And so I look at kids who were removed from this program when they turn 18, and I can I, I use variation from the 1996 welfare reform law, and so I can see them more than 15 years later when they're adults and look at how they're doing in the labor market. And I find that the kids who were quasi randomly removed from this program are earning a little bit more in the labor market than the kids who stay on the program. So you do find there is a disincentive effect. So you're you're saying. It depends on what you mean by disincentive, right? Because these are both the effect of actually receiving income. So yeah, I understand. We, you're saying you're saying there's an effect to the program in terms of the amount that people work. That right. may become either because they're richer or because of some marginal incentive effect. You can't really separate them that's out right. with this treatment that you have. That's right. But I think going back to what you said before is. I'm going to institute a program. It's going to have some effects because I'm going to transfer income to the people in this group, and that's going to have some effect. And then there's going to be some effect on people's behavior that's induced by having that program in place. There's very few, and that's one of the things economists bring to the table to say if you're going to have a program, it's going to change behavior, typically. I mean, we would, we, and that's something we often can predict on the basis of economics. Not just that it'll change behavior, but it'll change in particular direction. That's right. And, and it changes in the direction that we would expect, where the kids who are removed, uh, you know, either because they've lost a substantial amount of income or because the program um, would, have, uh, would have discouraged them from earning, um, the ones who were removed are earning more than, more than the ones who stay on the program. But if you look at their earnings levels, their earnings levels are extremely low. So the, the kids who were removed from this program are earning $4,000 a year well into adulthood. So I see them in their mid-30s, and they're still earning on average around $4,000 a year. 
they have basically no earnings growth over time. So if we think that one of the issues with public assistance programs is that they have adverse long-term consequences, you know, they either uh, they sap human capital or they or they, you know, increase your distaste for work or something like that, then at least in this context, that doesn't appear to be happening. So they, their, their earnings response is basically flat over the entire 16-year period um, in which I observe them. So they earn extra, but it, the amount extra that they earn isn't increasing as they get older. So if there is an effect, it's relatively a constant effect over time. That's right. In terms of the, uh, that again, that's for this program, not programs program. in general. And I do work to put those results in context. So I compare these youth who were removed from supplemental security income to other disadvantaged but non-disabled youth. So for example, youth whose families were on AFDC or TANF, the traditional cash welfare programs um, when they were young. And those kids also have pretty low earnings, but they have, they have substantially more robust earnings growth. So by age 30, those other disadvantaged but non-disabled children, youth are earning about three times more than supplemental security income youth who have been removed from the program. So you would say, at least in this context, we see, we put a program in place, it, it achieves its goal of increasing the income of these households or these individuals. It has some effect on what they earn for themselves but I think in your characterization, you'd say that's rather modest in terms that's of its how overall. That's I would interpret the results. In, in yes. terms of its overall. Just given effect. that the that we've we've taken them off the program, they've lost a substantial amount of income. So let's put that in context. So how much have we reduced their income by taking them off the program? We reduced their income by about eight thousand dollars a year in cash benefits, as well as their Medicaid benefit. Okay, and then what are they? And then. What is the effect on their earnings put in those same comparable units? They're earning about $2,500 more uh, than kids who stay on the program. So okay, they're losing so, $8,000 relative to the kids who stay on. They're earning uh, uh, $2,500 more. So, I mean, that, so, they're, they're, so of the 8000 so the net in terms of kind of, we, Contributed eight thousand on net, the increase was fifty five hundred. If you subtract the twenty five hundred less, that's right. So that so that's what you would say is is the difference. That's right. Now that's what right. what just to kind of put it in perspective, someone who thought there was a large effect in the program, they would have thought we would have given them eight thousand, and they would have lost how much? I mean. I guess I'm trying to think of what I would think if it was a large effect. If it had been 4,000, I would have said that's a pretty big effect. It's like half of it is gone. So 25 is not zero. It seems it's not, it's not zero. But if we think of a full-time, full-year minimum wage job as paying about $15,000 a year, on average, these kids aren't even coming close to what we might consider a self-sufficiency level of earnings. It's pretty clear. So, so that $4,000, I should say, is masking a substantial amount of heterogeneity. So there are about 10% of kids who do okay, who earn at what we would consider self-sufficiency levels, $15,000, $20,000 a year. The vast majority are falling very far behind and have earnings that are zero or, or close to effectively zero. That's, now that's family earnings or is that just individual that's earnings? That's individual earnings. So I find that I can, I can see what parents are doing as well because a lot of these children continue to live with their parents um, and parents have no response to uh, the 18 year old being removed. But, but in terms of the level of household income, it wouldn't be limited to that kid that they're not living on that four thousand dollars a year. That's right. Percent. I think we can safely say that their consumption is probably not four thousand dollars a year. Right. They, I do some work to think about what are the what are what are the other sources of consumption, right? And and I think in kind uh, family assistance, living living with parents, living with other family members, is probably a big source of that. Um, parents, though, are not increasing how much they earn, so it does seem like somebody in the family is taking a consumption hit. The other thing for this population is that. 
their access to non-disability public assistance is pretty limited because most of them are not living with children. Um, and so, so SSI may, may in fact be you know, an essential part of their income. So this is, this is a group for which, I, I think one way to think about it is, if we're thinking about a policy and we're, so we're just, you know, and this is, I think, the way economics teaches us to think about it is, all right, we have a goal, we see a group that absent the program would have very low earnings. And they're disabled, they're, they're, they, they may work, they may earn something, and if we provide them with assistance, They'll have they'll achieve a higher standard of living, and you know, to the tune of maybe an extra eight thousand that we're giving them. The consequence of that will be people will earn somewhat less on on their own. But they were remember they were starting at a low level, so there's a limit to how far down they can go. And so, in this population, given the low earnings potential. The, it's not, I guess, not that surprising that the reduction isn't so great because the potential wasn't so great, right? I mean, this is a group that absent the program wouldn't have earned that much. Right, and that's, that's I think that's precisely the point, right, okay. is that the program is not substantially discouraging their achievement or their self-sufficiency because without the program, their earnings would have been extremely low. Okay, so, that, so this is interesting because it pushes us now toward we know there's been a growth in disability insurance much more broadly. Right. That, you know, you look at 50-year-old men or 45-year-old men, enormous increase in disability roles over the last, you know, 40 years in, for, the, for that group. Right. What can we learn about that group, if anything, from your analysis? Is there something, or would you say that, well, those are different circumstances, it's an empirical question, we need to go to a different empirical data source, or is there something we should take away from your analysis would be helpful with that? So I think that's a, that's a pretty different population, I would say, because uh, many of the people that you're talking about are, are like you said, you know, 50-year-old men, they're qualifying for Social Security disability insurance. That's a substantially different population because those are uh, you know, often middle-class workers who have developed a work history and to qualify for disability insurance. The program that I'm studying, Supplemental Security Income, is a means-tested disability program. So it's a cash welfare program. It doesn't require a work history. Uh, it's based on low income and assets. And, you know, and these are, and these are children. So we have the same mix of effects and the same, like, well, here's the benefits, here's the, here's the downsides, but we would need to evaluate that separately using the same general way of looking at the world, right? We use the same economic tools, right. but the conclusions we come to might be different because it's a different population. I agree with that. Another, but uh, you know, another thing that I look at in this paper that might be more generalizable, perhaps not to disability insurance, but to, to cash welfare programs in general, is effects on the volatility of income. Yeah, I wanted to go there next because that is a second strand to your analysis. So the first strand, let me right. just summarize, is, you know, there are effects. They go the direction you might think. They're relatively small in terms of their overall size, although that mostly follows because there, there's not that much to... Reduce. It would have been hard right, for them that to fall by. That's anything. a finding of the paper, right? Right. That's precisely the finding of the paper. Absolutely. That Absolutely. Because so. they have low potential earnings, their earnings are not being discouraged that much by this program. Right. Because if it's not going to be that big absent discouragement, the discouragement can't have that big of an effect. Now, I'm not trying to minimize that as an effect. In some sense, you're sort of saying that explains to people why your finding shouldn't be regarded as wow, how did she ever find that? That seems so counterintuitive. In some sense, like many of the best results in economics, they sort of, after the fact, when you look back and you say, well, geez, I should, I, right. and I, I might, should have, maybe I should have known that. I, th right? I think there's still a lot of work to be done in interpreting that result. So I'm, now I'm working on looking at, uh, looking at outcomes like uh, criminal activity, uh, financial outcomes, health and healthcare utilization yeah. outcomes, to think about, 
you know, when we look at their incredibly low earnings, you know, does is crime playing a role, for example? Are they either because they are they're earning very little because they're incarcerated, or that they are turning to crime because their their potential earnings are so low? But yeah. I think to develop a more normative picture of their lives, it's very important to study outcomes beyond beyond the labor market. I guess one question is, and that applies in both levels. First, like why are the baseline rates, for lack of a better way of thinking about it, so low in terms of earnings? Right. The other is in terms of the impacts of any incentive effects column or whatever, program in, induced effects. I mean, one of the things that I, I, earlier, in an earlier interview, interviewed Jim Heckman, and one of the things we talked a lot about is for many people in the population, you want to think about work not just in terms of as a source of income, but it changes the way you structure your life and it changes the mm -hmm. way your life turns out. Even if it has a modest effect on your income, a earning this amount of money isn't the same as getting transferred a given amount of money in terms of other outcomes, for example. Are you able right. to address that in your work, or is that something you want to address in your work? It's something I very much like to address. So traditionally, economists talk about a disutility of work, right? That uh, work is, is generally modeled as something that people don't want to do, but there's no reason, like you said, that it can't go the other way, that it can't improve people's lives by providing structure. And one of the things I think is very important here, right, is that I can't, I can see that they're increasing their earnings, but I don't see at what cost, right? So that 10% of individuals who are earning at self, what we would consider self-sufficiency levels, uh, what is the cost to them? Of doing that, or especially the benefit. Or the benefit. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, maybe I'm, I move, maybe I'm moving into another neighborhood where there are more jobs, and for my kids or other, that's a good thing that they're now in a different location or something else. I mean, you, I, I, it's not clear even which way it goes. That exactly right. That's exactly right. It's not clear which way it goes. This is a this is a population of of people with disabilities, and so we might think that there is a higher disutility for them than for other individuals. But even for them, right? There's no reason why it can't go the other way, and uh, that's that's something that is very difficult to measure, of course, in administrative data. And so I think that that's another reason why, you know, looking at some of these other outcomes, and even I think there is a role for descriptive work, for qualitative work, to really understand what is going on in the lives of these individuals, and if. You know, if they're not working, why are they not working? And what are they doing if they're not working? Yeah. How I mean, are they how are they living? How are they living? Who are they living with? You know, I mean I mean one thing, I mean I've done a fair amount in terms of unemployment and how people re react to unemployment and you know, it changes a lot of aspects of your life, not just how much of a paycheck you cash or where you get your paycheck. So I th I think that would that would be really fascinating really study both for the baseline group as well as right. the impact of these of these kinds of programs um, now there's a, there's a tendency of people on the one hand to often say well if there's a disincentive effect then you know the people must not really be disabled and I think that's a misleading way it's not a good way to think about the world that I mean, I always like to give the example of you have somebody who has a bad back and their back hurts them. Well, if they have no other way of earning an income, they're going to go probably work, maybe not work so effectively, maybe not earn so much, but they're not going to want to starve. And if you institute a disability program that gives them money, even if they don't work, Presumably they may stop working. And one of the purposes of the program is so people exactly. who are disabled don't have to Presumably work. Presumably that is the reason that we have a disability program, right? Because we think that there are people in society who should not have to work. Right. And so, we shouldn't be surprised that when we, when we offer these benefits that some of them don't. And we shouldn't have necessarily a value judgment associated with people reducing the amount they work when you have a program like this. We should both expect that to happen Right. But in some sense, for many people, that's almost the intended consequence. So if I'm disabled, I don't have to work. I mean, 
that's really the part of the story. So I just want to make sure that's out there because I think often people say, you know, there you cold hearted economists go again. You're talking about all these things and, you know, and, and, and that's not really what it's about. It's about saying, well, but there are going to be effects and whether they're intended or unintended, you know, economics tells us they're going to be there. And by and large, when we look, we tend to find them. Right. And how yeah. big they are is always an empirical question. That's right. And it's not just limited to, to disability insurance, right? So the, the reform that I study was part of the 1996 welfare reform law. And the other big part of that legislation, of course, was uh, the move from AFDC to TANF, in which we, uh, we made work requirements much stronger for single mothers. And I think there is a substantial gap in the literature about what we know. So we've established that once we told, once we told single mothers that they have to work to be able to get benefits, uh, well, they started working, right? What and a surprise, that, huh? That's, yeah, that shouldn't be so surprising. <laughs> but what we haven't done is really evaluate the, their quality of life or the outcomes of their children to see what were the normative effects of of that policy, you know, some in some sense, it's mechanical that you take people off of a program, a welfare program, and then they they start working, right? But we also there is a reason that we have welfare programs and disability programs. Um, there are intended beneficiaries, and there's a lot. I mean, those questions are almost more interesting questions than the did they work more because we kind of knew which way that one was going to go in terms of outcomes on children now there are arguments in both directions and there are theories that run in both directions so it's not just a question of magnitudes anymore it's even a question of the direction i think there is a lot of work to be done in this area absolutely and you know i think you can point to a lot of economic theories that would say there'll be benefits for the children, other ones that say there'll be costs for the children. And right. knowing which one is there has to be an important issue. I mean, you know, and uh, policies don't happen in a vacuum. You know, and that's one of the things that I think your research is really good about. And let's go back to what you talked about earlier, because one of the things you mentioned is there's not just an effect on the level or the average level of earnings that these transfer benefits have another property, which is a sort of stabilization effect for income. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Right. So in addition to looking at how removing someone from SSI affects their income levels, I also look at how it affects the volatility of their income over time. And the idea here is that there is substantial, there's a a, a high volatility of earnings at the bottom of the earnings distribution. So the you know low low wage labor markets are ones in which turnover is very high, hours are unpredictable. And so the outside option for youth who have been removed from SSI is is probably pretty volatile earnings. So in other words, you're saying if I'm not earning if I'm not on SSI, so we take people in, in, in the effect of this 96 reform would be to affect the number of people who are remain on SSI when they become adults versus get removed from the SSI roles. And you're, what you mean by the outside option is you mean outside the program. So right. when I get taken off the program, I'm out there now in that largely mostly low-skilled labor market that I think we'd be talking about. And you're saying one characteristic of that market is not only do you have a low average level of income, your income year to year, month to month, quarter to quarter, tends to bounce around a lot. That's right. And if you read the sociology literature, this is a common theme, actually. Welfare recipients say that I could leave welfare and get a job, but it's very likely that I'm going to lose that job in a few months. And the stability that welfare provides for me and, and for my children is very important. Um, there's a recent book, Evicted, uh, where you know, the author goes and, and, uh, to Milwaukee and, and w- interviews several landlords and, and low-income renters. And one thing that comes up consistently through the book is that Many of these renters are 
are um, enrolled in SSI, and they're very attractive to landlords because the stability of that income means that they're going to be reliable renters. And so in this paper, I look at what happens when you remove someone from SSI, and I find that the volatility of their income increases substantially, and that is somewhat obvious effect of the, the stable SSI payments have been replaced by volatile earnings as the primary source of income. And, and I think that you know, when we think about the design of welfare programs, we want to consider not just their effect on income levels, but also their effects on income stability and think about how much uh, recipients value that stability. Right. And obviously the solution is not everybody should be on welfare because it gives them a stable income. Right. But if we could find ways to make the low skilled labor market more stable, uh, providing access to, to credit, for example, uh, that might make work more attractive in the sense that if I know that I can have a stable you know, level of consumption or if we can make the jobs themselves uh, more stable in some way, that might make work more attractive relative to relative to a welfare program. But just like when you analyze the transfer program itself, one would have to then do that same analysis for whatever program we put in to make that market more stable, because that in and of itself is going to have incentives. It have risks. That's yep. the. That's the never-ending chain that seems to happen in economics. Is every you know, it's like a guy trying to stuff that suitcase. Every time he stuffs in this side, something pops out the other side. That's absolutely. We always have to be careful about new programs that we create. But I think this is a dimension of the interaction between work and welfare that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. Right. right? That people are not just turning to welfare because it provides income, but because it provides some stability that work may not provide. Well, again, I think, you know, this is a common theme with your other finding really is, you know, again, it's a feature. It's probably one we should have paid attention to, but we didn't. And, you know, just, and, and that's one of the things about actually doing the empirical work to actually saying, let's just not talk about it. Let's actually go out and measure it. Because often just measuring it gives you a lot of insight. You know, in fact, I sort of look at your research and I would say on the low income side, even without the experiment, I could have learned a lot just by looking at the baseline world. You know, what does the world look like for people who aren't eligible for this program? Right. That would have been very informative. Just looking at the stability provided by the benefits affects how I look at the program. Right. So it's not all about econometrics. It's not all about some kind of teasing something out of the data. Often it's really just staring at the data and really taking in through a lens of economics what the data tell me. What are they saying? I think that I think I see that in your re, in your work tremendously. Right. I think even the descriptive statistics are very informative. Right. And that's what I'm you know con, as I said continuing to work on now is just developing a, a, a broader picture of what their lives look like, like in terms of criminal activity, financial outcomes, um, health, healthcare utilization. I think understanding what their lives look like as a whole is very important to, to designing effective policies. And it probably, and it tells you where to look for the answers and what, you know, what stories on the surface have a potential to pan out and which ones aren't going to pan out. Right. And, you know, maybe ultimately the ones you thought were going to work aren't going to work, but you can certainly get a lot of guidance as to where to go with your analysis by really looking at the data. Right. But if we never get to the point of looking at the data, we don't get don't that insight. don't know what insight. questions to ask. That's right. You know, so I think that's a really important lesson. And that extends far beyond just poverty programs. I mean, that's just economics. It's that combination to me of looking at the world with kind of an economic lens, but actually looking at the world. And it's the marrying those two things together, I think, is what really makes economics powerful. I mean, 
if you just took the world and you don't have like the economic framework to think about the world, I think you miss a lot. On the other hand, if you just say, I got this framework and I'm just using that absent looking at the world, I think you're missing a lot. I think you put the two together and you go a lot further. Right. And I think the other element of that is what approach we decide to bring to a particular problem, right? There's not a one size fits all approach to every question in economics. And so one of the things I'm working on now is thinking about still in the context of these SSI youth and and how to improve their outcomes is how their expectations about whether government benefits will be available in the future affects their human capital investment today. You know, if I think that I'm going to have benefits available to me in adulthood, do I decide to finish high school? Do I decide to take vocational training classes? And it's very hard to find a setting in which we quasi-experimentally vary the expect- expectations of outcomes. Well, that, I mean, that's true more generally, right? That, that one of the things that experiments are good for are th- effects that work kind of right through the person. Things that kind of work on the environment are much less amenable to that kind of treatment. Well, you know, yeah, that, so what I'm saying is that I, I at least have not been able to find a good setting, a natural setting in the world. But what I'm working on now is we can think about varying people's beliefs about the availability that those government, that those benefits will be there. And so we know uh, just from, from talking to people who work with these, these youth that these families still seem pretty unaware that there's a good likelihood that their kids will be removed from the program when they turn 18. And so one thing that I'm working on now is informing families about the likelihood that their kids are removed when, uh, when they turn 18 and then measuring human capital investment responses. So trying to, you know, both, both to try to improve their outcomes and to answer this, this broader question of how people respond to expectations about benefits rather than just their contemporaneous response. So to you're saying I can today. kind of manipulate expectations by, or maybe somebody's done that for me. That would be the kind of quasi-natural experiment if you could say, well, these people were dosed with some information that these people I know didn't get right. in some right hopefully close to randomized way but right and we are we are i mean the but now if the schools respond this is the tough part though right Mm -hmm. if the schools respond to that by treating students differently that's not going to show up in a randomized trial like that right if the school responds by treating all they change the way they run their program because these kids are going to get supported when they're older, so the schools pay less attention to these people. That randomized trial is not going to. In well, fact, we have that's to look at mechanisms. Out. Exactly. Right? We exactly. have to look at mechanisms, and I think that's very important. That we, so we'll look at long-term outcomes and administrative data, but we think it's very important to also use survey data to get it exactly each step in the process that has to happen. So families have to. Change, they have to understand the information. They have to change their expectations about the availability of benefits. They have to change their goals for their children. They have to make plans. They have to carry through on those plans. And ultimately, there has to be a return to human capital for these children for that change in behavior to translate into improved outcomes. And so, you know, using different using different types of data and different methodologies. Um, I think is very important. So we can get long-term outcomes from administrative data, but it's really survey data that's going to tell us what are the channels. Is it schools? Is it parents? Is it child behavior? What are the channels through which this intervention was or was not effective? Right. But I mean, the the channels through which things happen also affect our ability to pick it up even in a perfect, even in an experiment, right? I mean, if the channel kind of works on everybody, because it affects the way the school is organized. That we I no longer have treatments and controls anymore if, through that channel. I, sure. Everybody's treated now. Sure. Or, you know, so that's, that's the kind of issues that I think economics tells us should be there that sometimes are tough to tease out 
or that there's social aspects to some of these things, you know, and you can try to do it with community level analyses and right. stuff. And, but now you're becoming a macroeconomist, which we know is a hopeless exercise. I'm just, I'm just kidding. But, uh, we don't want to lose you to macroeconomics, so don't start doing that. I don't, I don't think that's the concern. The, uh, the, uh, now, you've been here at Chicago, and you've, you've obviously been elsewhere in the world. Uh, anything you see that's different here? Anything that's the same? How's your life been here in Chicago so far? It's been, it's been great so far. And I think that a big reason for that is that the University of Chicago really fosters communication and dialogue across fields in a way that is unique among institutions. So my research touches on many different areas, right? It touches on poverty, it touches on health, touches on disability. And I have, you know, developed friendship, friendships and relationships with people across the university at, in the economics department, at, at Booth, at the Harris School, at Social Services Administration. You know, they're very interested in this population and improving their outcomes at the medical school. And I have benefited greatly from those interactions because all of them bring a different perspective. Whether they know this population very well, they understand the health angle very well, they, you know, they understand the incentives created by this program in other contexts and can provide insight on that. Um, and so I think that's something that makes the University of Chicago very unique is this, is this interaction across schools and departments. I don't know. I've only been here, so I don't know what other places are like. But yeah, no, I think that's certainly been my experience as well, that it's a, a very, a place where you can find a lot of people looking at the same problem or related problems, but with different backgrounds and different expertise. Right. And uh, that can be really, really, really helpful. Where are you going next? I mean, you've, you described some of the stuff you want to do next, which is really, I think, critical for us to understand, you know, not just the earnings impacts of these things, but the broader life impacts that they have. And, and, and again, that's a theme for me that I've always been beaten into my head around here, which is there's a lot more to the world than just how much dollars you have. There's a lot of other outcomes that are incredibly important to people, whether it's health, family, children, you know. Absolutely, and they can help us interpret the effects on, on earnings and employment, right? right? In addition to being interesting in and of themselves. And so some of the, so I just described this work that I'm doing on thinking about how expectations about the availability of government benefits affect current human capital investment. So I, we have a substantial amount of evidence about how people respond to benefits that they're currently receiving in terms of their labor supply and in a more limited sense in terms of their human capital development. But we have very little evidence on how people's beliefs about what's going to happen to them in the future affects what they do today, this, di this dynamic question. And so that's, that's one of the main things that I'm working on going forward. Another question that I'm interested in is how people select into welfare and disability and social insurance programs. And one aspect of that is how we, how we design the programs. So we design things like how you apply for a program, application rules, right? And there's a debate in the literature about do the cost of application. So things like filling out forms, standing in line, anything that we might consider a hassle of applying. Are those screening out high ability people with a high opportunity cost of time? Or are they screening out people that we actually want to be enrolling in these programs? And so I'm doing that right now in the context of uh, social security field offices. So these are offices that help people apply for disability. And I'm looking at what happens when these offices close. So thinking about channels again, 
people have to go farther for assistance. So who is it that doesn't make the extra trip? That's right. And what are the particular types of costs that are deterring various types of individuals? So if we think about more travel time, uh, less in-person assistance. Longer wait times. Longer wait times. Is it, you know, is it discouraging people who have back pain? Is it discouraging people who have mental conditions? Is it discouraging people who have more severe conditions or less severe conditions? Um, I think that's an important aspect of how we design programs. And uh, that's, a, that's a way that we target programs, right? We, we target them in part by looking at observable characteristics like your income or your disability status. But we also target them by designing the program so that we we attract the people to the program that we really want in Well, and there maybe you know, we're going to get the people we designed the program to attack, exactly. whether we want them or not. I mean, right? But that's something that we should be conscious absolutely. of. Absolutely. Right? I, I guess designing. I just want to make clear those two things aren't necessarily related. That is, we design the program a certain way with a certain types of costs, and we're going to get people based on the way we designed it. Now that may be because that's why we—that's the people we wanted, sure. or maybe those are very actually the people we didn't want, but we just didn't think through that process so clearly right. when we thought about designing. And I and I hope that the work that I'm doing will help us inform, right? Will help us think about uh, that design and and be conscious of when we design a program this way, it's screening in or out different types of people, and we should know what those effects are. Yeah, it make the form more complicated, and so it becomes much more difficult for somebody who doesn't read very well or who doesn't, right. who's very nervous about filling out official forms. That may or may not be the person you want on a given program. Right. I mean, then I'm an employer looking for people to be a secretary, having a form that requires you to be able to fill it out cleanly Probably, Probably not idea. a bad idea. <laughs> right. On the other hand, if I'm looking for people who have certain types of disabilities, that may not be such a great screening mechanism. Right, exactly. You know, and so you got to think about what you're looking for. And uh, again, though, that's part of the theme I think economics tells us is, you know, these kinds of effects, they're going to be there. And we should take account of them, whether they're helping us achieve our goals or impeding us from achieving our goals. We should measure them we should instead measure of just them. speculating about what they are, right? Exactly. And in the process, we'll probably end up learning a lot about the world independent of the specific thing I set out to measure. I and hope we'll so. probably learn a lot more about what the next question we ought to ask might be. And... Uh, now, what do you, ultimately, we do this hoping that it will have a positive feedback on policy, and that policies will be designed more coherently, better targeted to achieve their objectives. Optimistic that that's going to happen, pessimistic that that's going to happen, not something you've thought about a lot. I know it's something that I think about often, and I have... So my, my work on the SSI program and you know, what happens when you remove uh, youth at 18, I think the, you know, the, the policymakers and people who administer the program have been very interested in those results. You know, they, they, they do want to know what the impact of their policies is on people who are receiving benefits. And so my interaction with the policy world has been has been fairly positive. I don't know how quickly change will happen, but I do think that many policymakers and and program administrators are are receptive to understanding how their program is working. And I, to me, I've always found that what you really need to do in those contexts is make your presentation of what you're trying to say very clear and make it simple, get to the point, don't, don't be overly complicated. But on the other hand, don't oversell. I mean, that, I think that that, to me, has always been an important part to say, look, I can tell you some things, I can't tell you others. I, I can point you in the right direction. I can say some things with a high degree of confidence, other things I think probably are directionally right, but not so obvious. And I've always found policymakers, if you have that kind of discussion with them, are listening. I agree. I agree. There's a, I have a, 
another paper where I look at the effects of removing young children from SSI on parental labor supply. And I find that parents replace the SSI income one for one with earned income. So they increase their earnings dramatically in response to a child being removed from the program. And when I present these results to policy audiences, I have to be very careful to say, you know, just because we see parents responding this way, this gets back to what we were talking about previously, um, about, about households responding uh, when they face a loss of income, that it doesn't meet necessarily mean that the program wasn't valuable, right? Uh, we have to know what if the, you know, if the parent was staying home taking care of a child with a disability, um, then their going to work may not actually be good for the child. And so I definitely think researchers have a responsibility both in the presentation and the interpretation of, of the results to be, uh, to be cautious and to be very clear about what is known and what is unknown. Yeah, and what and, and, and how and, and you a lot of times you can be helpful in how you ought to think about it because I mean that's a great example where somebody just listening to you might say, Well, geez, the net effect was nothing and therefore, right. geez, I I spent all this money and got nothing for it. Well, that's not quite true. So other things changed and also pushes us back to what we talked about before. Measuring other outcomes ought to be a priority as well. That, you know, right. I think people think of economists as very narrowly focused on dollars and cents, but my experience has been at least the economists that I know. I don't think that's a fair characterization. That economists and, and care to that a point, lot about. I'm now I'm I'm now looking at what is happening to those children. So not just what their parents are doing, but what does that mean for their criminal behavior in adulthood, for other outcomes? Exactly, and I think that's an important message that you know can maybe resurrect us a little bit in the eyes of the public that we're not quite as quite as narrowly focused as people might think that uh, there's a lot more to life than just money uh, right. and he but economics isn't limited to talking about money not at all it's a it's a way of looking at human behavior and human interaction with a particular perspective and modeling framework but that's, one that's useful for lots of questions. That's right. And that's exactly, as we were talking about at the beginning, what attracted me to economics in the first place, a method for solving problems. And it seems like you've, you're well on your way to having a career of doing that. And that's fantastic. And Thank you. It's been, it's been a lot of fun so far, and I'm looking forward to what's ahead. All right. Well, terrific. Well, thank you for joining us here today. This has really been fun for me, and hopefully it wasn't too painful. No, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun for me as well. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Economics Amplified on SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and on our website. The Becker Friedman Institute for Research and Economics advances inquiry that illuminates our choices, our economy, our society, and our future. To learn more about the Institute, visit bfi.uchicago.edu.